So there was this guy who was offering this incredible tool who was putting CCTV cameras on every classroom. And, and the principal had a little screen with every single teacher at the same time monitoring the practices. And the guy was selling this thing as an amazing tool to improve teaching. And I was horrified when I was there. And I said, you know what, this thing is not gonna help, but also it's gonna generate a lot of uh, problems. And one of the main problems that these kind of practices is generating, and this is an example, but we live in a over accountability obsessed society, is we break something that John, you and I have been discussing this topic earlier, is we break the trust. That was Dr. Cristobal Cobo, director of the Saibal Foundation in Uruguay. Welcome to the Education Futures Podcast. I'm John Morvick. Big data is our focus for this episode. We were inspired by Kathy O'Neill's provocative book, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. In this book, she examines and critiques the widening roles that mathematical modeling plays in our society. O'Neill exposes that much of this big data world is built on black box models that shape our future, both as individuals and as a society. These so-called weapons of math destruction, as she calls them, they score teachers and students, they sort resumes, they grant or deny loans, they evaluate workers, they target voters, they set parole, and they monitor our health. In a world where we are obsessed with measurement, there are some huge implications for the world of education. We wanted to drill in deeper, and the questions we had ranged from the simple to the profound. Specifically, we wanted to know, what is data literacy? What does it mean for educators? Where do we see big decisions being made in education that are based on algorithms? Who ultimately controls the data on students that we gather in education? Where does it all go? And if institutions are trying to game the ranking systems by manipulating data, is it ethical for students to likewise cheat to get into those institutions? We chatted with Dr. Cristobal Cobo, who is the director of the Saibal Foundation in Uruguay. He recently hosted a big data workshop there, and he spoke internationally on learning analytics and knowledge development in education. You're probably wondering, why Uruguay? In 2007, Plan Saibal became the first nationwide ubiquitous educational computing initiative in the world to be based on one-to-one computing. Uruguay is not a big country, but this still means that they need to manage 700,000 devices, plus connectivity and training for teachers and students. Today, Plan Saibal operates and integrates a large scale of databases fed by a number of management and educational activities. A large portion of the Saibal Foundation is to make sense of the data that they've collected to enhance further learning and policy development. In a sense, the country has become a perfect laboratory for not just one-to-one computing, but also for looking at data much more broadly in education. I've known Chris for over a decade. Our first big project took place over 10 years ago when I was a faculty member at the University of Minnesota. At that time, he was working at the Faculty of Latin American Social Sciences in Mexico City. We collaborated on an internet-based course on knowledge formats that connected our institutions together, and we also opened participation to others around the world. Back then, we called this a co-seminar, but these days, we recognize courses like these as MOOCs. I'm really proud to have worked with Chris on these innovative projects, and I'm really happy to have developed a friendship with them over the years. Hi, John. It's good to talk to you. I mean, it's incredible that we have been for 10 years sharing projects and crazy ideas all around the world. So I'm very happy to be here, and, and I have to say as well that I celebrate this upper conversations that you promote because they're super important, and now more these days in which there are plenty of 
noise in, in the in the conversation between education and technology. Um, I'm Chris. Um, I'm running a research center here in Uruguay, Seibal uh, Foundation is named. And I also I collaborate and research with my colleagues at the Oxford Internet Institute in, in the UK. Chris, I suppose to start off a bit, um, what is data mm -hmm. literacy? And what does this really mean for educators? So for something like 10, 15 years, we've been broadly talking about digital literacy or uh, information computer literacy. Uh, the Europeans call it uh, the, the, the computer driving license even. So uh, most of those discussions, the focus was on the master or on the use of the devices. Um, and then we learned that uh, even if you are very good using word processors or, or, or browsers or the kind of tools, that was not enough in order to make the best of the technology in the, in the learning environment. Uh, so then the focus was much more on producing contents and the web 2.0 and all these so, sort of social practices uh, came into the, in, into the world of education. Now, the, I guess one of the following trends had much more to do with the mobile, the portability of the produce, production of information. And then you are not only generating contents uh, aware, but also you can be streaming data that you might not be aware of. And that can be incredibly powerful if we make a good use of it, but also can open a really l large number of problems and concerns that we have to take care of. And this, in the same way that the web in the early years used to be a topic only for techie people, very geekies, now has been a, ma a problem of, of, of a broader concern. So data literacy, in a way, has to do with how can we bring these discussions of the, 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 how powerful can be the data in the world of education, but we have to understand opportunities, but also we have to be deeply aware of the number of problems that that can be uh, bringing to discussion. So to briefly summarize the answer is, the data literacy is another layer of the digital skills that has to do with understanding when this can be useful, but understand as well, what are the concerns that we have to take into account at the personal, institutional, and the national level as well. You recently organized a conference on big data and education. I believe it was last April. Can you explain or explore a bit more in detail what this big data movement is about and what it really means for those of us in the world of learning? Okay, no. First of all, there's a number of uh, events, I guess, simultaneous events, large events worldwide, uh, talking about these topics. It's, it's such an, an, a relevant uh, matter. It's super trendy. It's not only talk, uh, taking place in the world of education, of course, in the elections as well, as, you, as we have discussed earlier. But um, I guess the, the, main, the main discussion today is how can we make from this really powerful instrument something that can be used with, pos for, for, with positive purpose for the teachers and for the learners, and not only being used for marketing interests or political interests. Uh, so this is, this is what we discussed here uh, last April, as you said. We invite people from a number of universities. Open University in, in the UK, for instance, is, is, is developing a number of policies which suggest a very useful framework to take into account. Uh, which stayed as a main premise, and I think it's useful to bring into this conversation, transparency. Transparency as, as the golden rule in, to, to, to talk about big data. We brought people from the learning analytic community, uh, which is also one of the big uh, players now. They will, they will organize an event in, in Vancouver in, in next March, and we will go there. 
and um, people who has a much more critical uh, or cynical point of view of what are the, what, what could be the problems. Like Cathy uh, O'Neill, I would say Neil Selvin also is one of those who say, hey guys, you really need to be really well aware of some of the problems that this thing is behind. So um, I guess, uh, and the last week in Belgium, there was also a big event on big data, uh, open data, and data literacy. So I would say that there's uh, many people open discussions in this in this area, and this is because we are aware that we have a plenty of skills and and and, and literacies that we still have to develop. In weapon in weapons of math uh, destruction, Kathy O'Neill warns us that these algorithms that we trust. Um, to help us make you know these so-called fair decisions by using you know big data concepts, actually perpetuate inequality, um, and so that these are these so-called weapons of math destruction in their book. So she argues that they not only increase inequality but also threaten democracy as well. So some examples that she had were was like Facebook's new trending uh, topics algorithm, and it's really a non-transparent means of how they filter stories and news to people. And the thing is that 63% of Facebook users report that they get their news from Facebook. And there's some really scary implications because it uses software, uh, not humans, to filter the news. And I think we've seen a lot of hate speech, fake news, and other, other sort of noise get in there. And that seems to be leading to a lot of problems. In the United States, uh, you know, there were some implications for this in our presidential election. We have data-driven policing. You know, we're trying to be predictive in predicting crime and where it happens, but it really winds up perpetuating racial and socioeconomic uh, bias by targeting areas that are not rich and white. And decisions like um, credit, insurance rates, and access to colleges and schools are increasingly based on how we, as humans, fit into these software algorithms. So I guess my, my question for you, Chris, is where do we see these big decisions being made in education that are based on algorithms? Great question. So just to put the question in context, um, I guess big data exists from a number of years and now we are much more aware, as we said. But I mean, since the beginning of credit cards, uh, algorithms have been taking analysis and shaping our activities, our behaviors into patterns. And so banks have been for many, many decades suggesting if we I, are either attractive consumers or risky consumers or people who can get into trouble. So this is not new at all. But now the sources of information are diversifying. That's why, uh, as Katy O'Neill suggests, when this thing has, is having a much larger implication in our daily life, uh, it's really important to talk about openness in terms of how those algorithms have been deployed or are being used or what are the decisions that are taken based on those algorithms. Because she says something that I really, that, that I really uh, support, which is there is not such a thing as an objective, uh, objective uh, uh, algorithm. This, an algorithm at the end of the day is focusing the importance of some aspects and dismissing the other ones. So when you do that, you really have a subjective way of understanding reality. And this is incredibly risky when you are talking about learning or when you are assessing not only the students, but also the teachers. So in order to move forward, the challenge is in the same way that we were discussing the relevance of open access 10 years ago with the creation of um, Creative Commons and the open access movement in science. Now the, one of the challenges is to have open access or tra full transparency or disclosure of those algorithms that have implications with the citizens. And this is a discussion 
that is it's not broadly uh, adopted today. So when we have this small community who manage, produce, and administrate the data, and we have a large community of data producers, because at the, at the end of the day we are data producers, the part that we are not aware of, we have to reduce this data imbalance or inequality and really explain in a transparent, meaningful, and not really checky way what are the implications and what are the responsibilities of the institutions that are behind that. Uh, if we don't do that, the data inequality will still persist, I would say. Chris, who ultimately controls the data on students that we gather in education? Where does all this all go? This is an important question. I am afraid I don't have the, the answer, but uh, we have some ways of approach to that. So when the internet appears, one of the main things that happen is it removes the middleman. Uh, so we don't have to go through people who sell the things. We can go directly to the providers and we can jump some of the stages and we can reduce the, the prices. But at the same time that some of the middleman or, or stakeholders disappear, we have new ones. So people tend to think that Facebook is the main source of uh, manipulation of data. But at the end of the day, um, Facebook is solely the middleman. I mean, I'm saying Facebook, but could be equally applicable to to Skype and could be applicable to WhatsApp and, and Google and other companies um, and the governments in other instances. So the question is, to whom are they providing the information uh, that is collected from us? Collected from us because we, in a naive way, we have accept the terms and conditions without putting a lot of attention into that. Uh, but uh, when we analyze, for instance, the last election, and we see that the, the, the candidates were the one who, at the end of the day, were processing that information collected from the uh, telecommunication companies, uh, we understand that uh, there is a really large number of people involved into that. And the question that I have is, uh, why can we uh, take the good practices of those experiences and bring them into education. And of course, removing the bad ones. Removing the bad ones means to provide a much more transparent policy in terms of how is the data of the students being used, what are the commitments of the governments, and, and uh, to what extent that information is well protected in terms of encryption, um, repurposing of the data, and of, of some other, 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 some other problems that may show up. Um, so in that sense, we in education have a, a I would say, a, a, a diminished way of approaching big data and education. And it's time to catch up with the good things, removing the bad ones and making them to work on, this, on the service of education. Uh, my wonderful wife, Kelly, asks, how can students, parents and teachers educate themselves to understand big data so it's useful in facilitating learning when it seems that those who are developing the algorithms do so in order to present information in a way that is beneficial to their causes or their perspectives or their agendas? That's a great question. I guess this is a matter of flow of flows of innovation. Uh, usually these days is a much more uh, top-down way of uh, using and exploiting big data. And, and I guess the, the commitment that governments, universities, centers for research, uh, technology developers have is one to provide these instruments to make to simple citizens to understand that in a way that can make them uh, meaningful. Uh, for instance, discussions like 
environment or open access, which at the very beginning were very technical discussions and then were embraced by the community and they become socially cool to talk about these sort of things. They got at the end of the day a massive support because people understood the main the main keys of those discussions. And we have to have something similar with open data. When when Snowden came into the discussion, I guess one of the main benefits of that disclosure of the things that were happening with the NSA was people who didn't put a lot of attention into that. They say, oh gosh, this can really affect me and I have to better understand this thing. Of course, there are plenty of work to do in that sense, but I guess we have to translate these complicated discussions into something that is understandable for five years old kid who is the one who is also providing data at the end of the day. I like that a lot. I think that there's um, also opportunities for um, institutions to really game the system a bit and manipulate the data to to make themselves like great. Do you see any examples of that where institutions are doing that? So we have today a crisis of trust, which is affecting a number of institutions today. And I'm afraid that in education that is starting to happen as well. So we have two, at least two approaches. One is to deny everything and continue moving in this in the current direction. And the other one is hacking the system. Yeah. So to say, you know what, I'm not going to provide this information or I'm going to disclose the information that you are managing of, on my behalf without my permission and to, to provide a more transparent way to, to understand those conflicts. I guess the one of the one of the practices that is important to take a, into account as a good example is the the number of the increasing number of watchdogs initiatives, which are saying, "Hey, you know what, government, you shouldn't be using those algorithms without people permission, or you shouldn't do, uh, you shouldn't be allowed to repurpose the data that you collect for this tool and reapply them for these other purposes." the more empowered the community will be, the more likely that governments and telecommunication companies will be in a better position to say, you know what, we have to open this one-to-one or one-to-many-to-many or many to many conversation in order to make this thing a dialogue and not only a top-down, one-to-many stream kind of practice, which is the one that we are seeing these days. And this is only, so far we have talked about only the, 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 the legal bit, but we also have the ethical one. I mean, all that has, what has to do with uh, rankings, for instance, all, all the things that we say on behalf of underage kids are really sensitive in terms of to, to what extent that could be ethically acceptable that someone is taking decisions for those kids if their parents of those, they know, they know nothing out of that. And also, uh, the thing gets even more complicated when we, when we understand that the institutions are not uh, technically savvy enough to make better, good analysis of this <laughs> yeah. information. Because when you, you may find really strong correlations between I and B, and you can design policies out of that. But we all know that this could be incredibly risky because those, those correlations may not explain causality. So in, in, in science, in science we learned for the last 20 or 40 years that the, the more you open the discussions in science, the more consistent and robust is the science and the possibilities of identifying mistakes. This is something that needs to happen also with big data and education. All right. Well, thanks so much. You bring up a really great um, point about ethics and ethical dilemmas that are that are emerging. And I want to share this excerpt from from uh, the book. She writes that 
Students in the Chinese city of Zhongxiang had a reputation for acing the national standardized test, or the Gaokao, in, in winning places in China's top universities. They did so well, in fact, that authorities began to suspect they were cheating. Suspicions grew in 2012, according to a report in Britain's Telegraph, when the provincial authorities found 99 identical copies of a single test. So the next year, as students in Chongqing arrived to take the exam, they were dismayed to be funneled through metal detectors and forced to, rel to re relinquish their cell phones, some sort of tiny transmitters disguised as pencil erasers. And once inside, the students found themselves accompanied by 54 investigators from different school districts. And a few of those investigators crossed the street to a hotel where they found groups positioned to communicate the students through their transmitters. The response to this crackdown and cheating was volcanic. Some 2,000 stone-throwing protesters gathered in the street outside the school. They chanted, we want fairness. There is no fairness if you don't let us cheat. It sounds like a joke, but they're absolutely serious. The stakes of the students were high. As they saw it, they faced a challenge either to pursue an elite education and, and prosperous career or stay stuck in their provincial city, a, re a relative backwater. And whether or not it was their, their case, they had a perception that others were cheating. So preventing the students in Shongxian from cheating was unfair in a system in which cheating was the norm. Following the rules amounts to a handicap. <laughs> I, mean, I, I love the example. I mean, so in this area, does following the rules amount to a handicap? You and I, we've been discussing for a long time this phrase, don't value what you measure, measure what you value. And we have this, this problem that we, have, we are living in a society that is obsessed with what you can measure and what you cannot measure seems to be irrelevant. And this discussion has been landing into the world of PISA, for instance. Um, and despite that criticizing PISA as a useless piece of information, again, the big, the big question is, what about all those kind of learnings that you cannot measure with a tool like that? And this is, this is to better understand the limitations of those kind of tools. And the example that you give from China is beautiful because it's another one more of those examples in which we stress the focus on the product and not in the process. So there is this wonderful book from Elizabeth Lodge, who published it in MIT Press. It's called The War of Learning. And she mentioned something beautiful, which is very aligned with the example that you gave in, uh, from China. Uh, she said that some students who are getting used to being controlled uh, when they submit a, a, an essay or, or an assignment in the university, whose papers are scanned through the Turnitin software, which, which identify if students are cheating or not. You know that. And the students, they learn that at the end of the day, the, 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 uh, the Turnitin is an algorithm. So there are many ways of cheating the, the algorithm. So what the kids, they do is they translate the piece of text that they copy from somebody else into the, the Google Translator into one language, for instance, to French. Then they move it into Russian and then they translate it back into English. So there's no way that the algorithm will be able to identify the, the students who are cheating. And, and this is a beautiful example of how can we uh, misunderstand the control of the learning product without focusing on the process. If you don't understand the relevance of the process, this big data only will provide some data that those who are Data, data illiterate, sorry, uh, will fail. All the rest will find ways to escape that. So again, we are, we are landing into the topic of ethical concerns, but also data inequality. Those who can play these new rules will succeed. And this is a problem of inequality again. But is there a sort of honor among thieves? 
when we talk about um, ethical cheating. So if universities are trying to game the system for a higher ranking, is it ethical to try to game the system yourself to get into university that is perhaps falsely presenting itself as well? It's a, it's a good question. I, I have a number of problems with the rankings because they tend to benefit some kind of universities in some parts of the world as well. Uh, it's no surprise that many universities from the southern hemisphere are almost invisible in those rankings. But this is one part of that. The second part of it is, again, as we said earlier, you measure the things that you can measure uh, and you dismiss all the rest. I haven't seen a ranking so far, maybe I'm wrong, but if, you, if, you, if you're aware of one, let me know, in which they measure the level of self-fulfillment of those kids when they graduate. No, of course they measure the things that they can measure, the number of papers that they publish and the number of labs that they have. And it's a good thing to have that. But if you don't consider other kind of instruments which are outside of the current scopus of the big data, those tools will also simplify the way that we understand reality. So we tend to think that today we are living as in, in this kind of positivism with astero in, in steroids, but at the end of the day, it's a really simplification of reality. So my, my claim, I guess, uh, is getting back to the transdisciplinary way of understanding the problems, not only focusing on the big picture, but also the small, small data also is important, and also a higher level of transparency, because with that, we can have a much more diverse discussion. And I guess we are far away from that, those points so far. Think of all the learning that goes into the process of cheating. Is this something that we ought to be celebrating instead of chastising? That's a great question, and I fully support that, that view. I have a colleague, and I wrote in the book uh, Innovación Pendiente, who said a lovely example of uh, Quixote de la Mancha. You know Quixote in Spain, uh, from, written from, some, from Cervantes? Don Quixote. Don Quixote, that's right. So he said the following. He said, the internet is completely overloaded with uh, summaries of Don Quixote. Uh, endless amount of those, short ones, long ones, bad ones, good ones, some of them based on chapters, some of them the big picture. So this colleague was saying, what about instead of punishing those students who use somebody else's summary, why don't we ask the students to collect several summaries of the Don Quixote and I compare them, identify the best of them and the worst of them and identify some of the strengths and and make a, uh, an analysis throughout these different sources. And I guess we are much more living in this world in which it's not only one source, the one that is relevant, but it's the way how do you deal with all those kind of uh, different kind of information. So when, when this colleague is mentioning that it's important to value those kind of processing, process, uh, mental process to understand how to browse through these different uh, ways to scale the Turnitin focus uh, spotlight, I think there's value in that. Um, so there's value in hacking. And hacking can be also be ethical if you, you teach the students how to do it. When you go to MIT, the, the, the best, one of the, one of the first things that you see is the whole system at MIT encourage you to do hacking without breaking any legal rule. And you can do that. But it's an, as he said, it's focusing on collaboration and creativity and, and changing the mindset, uh, many things that we have discussed earlier. I suppose this really uh, links together then with ideas around assessment and assessment in schools. So what's your mm -hmm. take? Well, this is a topic that I've been working a lot uh, for the last two years here in Uruguay. Despite that you may see 
in pretty much every educational system in the world that they all embrace innovation, they, most of them embrace the use of technology in the system, you hear very little discussions on innovation the assessment. Because it's boring. Assessment is not as trendy as buying a new toy, a new device to bring into the classroom. And I guess this is a pending discussion. I call it impending innovation in the book. But it's basically, how can we expand, enhance, diversify what you value as a learning outcome? This is not a war against the traditional standardized test or, or the traditional ways of assessing the amount of information that you may have, but it's a call to diversify and also value valuing other things. I mean, all the uh, digital badges is a kind of, or the e-portfolios are different approaches to say, we could value all the things. So when, when a student along the school or the university is developing all the kind of learning practices outside of the curriculum, outside of the classroom, today with the big data and all these social network tools, we are in a much better way, in a much better shape to value and recognize those as a learning outcomes today. So it's not a matter that we don't have the data. It's not a matter that we don't like innovation. It's a matter of changing the mindset. It's, and we don't need a, a national policy to say, why don't we value, recognize this kind of expanded curriculum? Um, it's a matter of teachers who can have find the time, which is not always easy, uh, to say, let's find these other ways to collect, recognize, promote the success practices and also the failures, because there's plenty of learning out of that as well. In this era, it seems that, you know, we're using, I mean, we're using data not only to evaluate students, but all the aspects of school and including teachers. And we say that, you know, this is a, a fair way to evaluate different teachers. And we're starting to see instances where we can have otherwise well-regarded teachers fired uh, for having a low score in assessment tool. And Kathy O'Neill argues that many of these assessment tools are very opaque. That is, they're not transparent in how they work. Mm -hmm. So at this age of data-driven decision-making, is there a more fair approach to evaluating teachers in addition to how we evaluate students? You know, uh, two years ago or three years ago, I was in BET, one of the main firsts in the world of education and technology in London. So there was this guy who was offering this incredible tool who was putting CCTV cameras on every classroom. And, and the principal had a little screen with every single teacher at the same time monitoring the practices. And the guy was selling this thing as an amazing tool to improve teaching. And I was horrified when I was there. And I said, you know what, this thing is not going to help, but also it's going to generate a lot of uh, problems. And one of the main problems that this kind of practices is generating, and this is an example, but we live in a over accountability obsessed society is we break something that John, you and I have been discussing this topic earlier is we break the trust. So we have to find a good balance between monitoring without breaking the trust, because if you don't trust the people, there's, we will have this uh, war of learning experience in many other spaces. So for instance, when we compare the, the typical example, when we compare Finland with Korea's education system, we see that one of them is based on trust. And the other one is based on a obsessed monitoring accountability. So uh, it's up to us to define to which one of them we want to go. Now, the trust is not that naive that I trust you and I leave you to go away. Uh, but the trust is based on good quality professionals, is, is based on providing the good skills and the good training in order to allow them to take better decisions. 
so uh, OECD few few months ago released this report in which they say we have been the, the OECD countries have been in, increasing the spending on education on 20% for the last 10 years, but we haven't changed the performance on PISA tests at all in those 10 years, uh, despite that it's much more expensive than 20, 10 years ago. And I guess with accountability happened the same. You don't get better system only because you have higher level of uh, control. The, the Foucault idea of the panoptic is super applicable today into education. And I think this is a problem because you can monitor everyone, but that doesn't mean that you will build better performance. And of course, that will mean that you harm trust. I think that the issue of trust is super important, uh, especially since we've been, as you say, selling big data systems or data systems um, as a way to increase trust or trust. You can trust the data more than you can trust uh, individuals. And so I think that's a really important aspect to to bring in. We got a, another comment in or a question uh, it says, as a result of the standards movement, what happens in schools has become uh, even more compartmentalized. Big ideas are broken into tiny parts, and each part is taught slash assessed independently of the whole, and never, uh, and often never synthesized to show how each part fits into the whole. How do we shift mindsets to allow for evaluating alternative processes and products in a wider view instead of simply evaluating a series of small, disconnected benchmarks? That's a really tough one. I, uh, but it's not a new question, though, I have to say. This is a discussion between having a super-specialized curriculum focused on some silos of contents or tending to move into these subject-based uh, discussions in which are much more transversal. Uh, this could be an approach. We, we know today that, for instance, Phil, and again, sorry to go again with the same country, but they are moving into this direction, despite that they are ranking very high into the, into the PISA results. Not as high as they used to be, but they're really high in the top, in the top countries. And I guess, and this is a question that has been coming again and again, and people feel frustrated into say, I want to have a better education. I want to teach my students better. I want my kids to be in a better school who may have a big picture of some of the problems of reality. They learn how to deal with reality and not they really need to succeed into the curriculum or the assessments. But I feel frustrated because I cannot take my kid out of the system. And I understand this, this kind of creative tension that is behind. My take is you can be within a system that uh, sometimes tend to narrow down your specificity of knowledge, your, your, your competency in some specific areas or core areas, to call it in the, in the more uh, global language today. But also, you can encourage those kids to develop other kind of practices while they're in the school, which is like uh, attending uh, some labs out of the classes or some inter social entrepreneurial initiatives that can encourage and diversify the knowledge in which you can connect the dots from different silos which are separated in the curriculum. And I guess this is one of the main challenges, how to find a good balance between uh, this disaggregated way of understanding uh, the, the knowledge which we see in a lot of curriculums nowadays and the outside world for calling in, 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 in a ridiculous way that is how happened in the internet in which the knowledge is connected from many different disciplines. You and I, John, we always use this quote, this phrase from George Simmons who says, the network is the learning and which is this capacity of connecting different sorts of knowledge. We may not have any, anything in common, but if you find a way to to, to use this language, which allows you to explore different kind of knowledge, 
you will be in a much better shape to later later on to redesign the way that you learn and to adapt in a in a world that is full of uncertainty. Uh, Yosai Ito, the director of the Media Lab, this guy used this concept of antidisciplinarism, and uh, and he says it's not enough to be transdisciplinary, but you have to be able to understand languages of different. Uh, silos of knowledge in a way that you can connect them and not only understand them. Uh, and I guess this is something that we see in a daily based life in the online world, but has not been landed enough, has not uh, been per- um, adopted, embraced enough into the curriculum, I guess. I've got one final question, and this is reorienting back towards the book a bit, but I think it's, um, it's a real important topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's a it's a topic for a whole other conversation completely. Um, but O'Neill argues that college ranking algorithms, these entrance exams, and many other data driven aspects for lives are really designed to reward the rich. Those are the people who can afford to game the system to you know cheat ethically, um, and this is really done at the expense of the poor. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps there are some great examples we can we've been talking about in education, but in other areas as well. She said that in Florida, that adults who have clean driving records but poor credit scores—that means in the past they have not managed their money very well—that they paid an average of one thousand five hundred fifty-two dollars a year more than the same drivers with an excellent credit, but to have been caught driving drunk. <laughs> so are these? Is there a chance that that we're really punishing the poor uh, and the the less advantaged uh, with these uh, these systems, or it's uh, or it's uh, it's a consequence of it that was unintended? Well, the answer is the short answer is definitely yes. Uh, you know, when I when I left Oxford, uh, that those were the years of the MOOCs, and MOOCs were about to change the world, and universities were about to disappear, and all those sort of things. And I, we were really excited among the uh, based on the possibilities of that, and there's, there were a lot of excitement. And then when I, I moved to Uruguay, I realized this was not even a conversation about MOOCs. It's not that they were risky or not. They were they were out of the field of discussions out of the area of interest. So then I learned uh, that this world of technology and education, uh, but the, the impact of the digital culture in the daily based life in a more broad sense, is happening in a kind of parallel universe from those who generate and produce technology and the more wealthy areas of the world, if you want, and, and the peripheries of, of the South Hemisphere in, in the larger sense. Of course, there is a big problem out of that, and we need to better link these these two. Uh, of course, we know very nice initiatives in which we bridge those gaps, but with all these skills in balance, with all these new literacies in balance between between regions, the digital divide is evolving into new forms, into new shapes. But uh, at the end of the day, it's still persistent. It's like a, it's like an onion. We remove in some countries the layer of the access, like Uruguay, who sort out the problem with connectivity in the schools. But the problem is if you have so many other layers that you have to take into account. And again, one of the big ways of moving forward is to transit from the discussion on smart cities into smart citizens. And this is still in the agenda we have to move forward. Now that you've listened to this interview, why not earn an hour of continuing professional education? 
After all, you've already done half the work. Just go to educationfutures.com learn and sign up for the Moodle course that corresponds to this episode. After you post your thoughts in response to the questions we have for you in the Sound Off Forum, you can download your certificate of completion. It's free, and it's our gift to you for listening and supporting us. Again, visit educationfutures.com learn to earn your free continuing professional education credit. At Education Futures, we provide research, workshops, and advising for schools, governments, and other organizations that want to change the world for the better. We believe that education and our approaches to human development need both an innovation and a revolution. We look at the big picture from a systems perspective and question, just what are we educating for? What does a global citizen of the 21st century or 22nd century look like? And we start looking hard at these questions, we realize that we need to focus on how to learn, not what to learn. And this refocusing on the how requires us to develop more meaningful ecologies of solutions. We are ambitious. We want to transform schools into vibrant, visionary, hard-charging, front-running, and value-creating centers of excellence that everybody will be proud to attend, work for, and collaborate with. We practice what we preach. We advocate for open dialogue and networking, and we share everything we've learned openly to the greatest extent possible. And we try to have fun as well when we engage communities of educators in our workshops and in our research. To learn more, visit educationfutures.com. You can also write to me personally at john at educationfutures.com. This episode of the Education Futures podcast is made possible through the support of our wonderful listeners, and especially the folks who write to us, who provide feedback, insights, and ideas for future episodes. You can learn more about the series at educationfutures.com slash podcast. If you'd like to chat with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at edfutures and on Facebook at educationfutures. Keeping conversations on the future of education going depends on you. We would love for you to share your stories, your thoughts, opinions, and ideas for use in upcoming podcasts. Please email me at john at educationfutures.com and visit us at educationfutures.com to engage in a discussion involving learning and the future of education. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Morvek. Thank you, and we look forward to continuing the conversation with you in our upcoming podcasts. In our next episode, we will question many of the assumptions we have on education as we interview Peter Hartkamp, author of Beyond Course of Education. Thanks for listening. 